0: That Jews harp was played for me recently by D. Williams of Killarney, and its music sent my thoughts scurrying back over the many byways and highways of memory. The last time that I can remember hearing the Jews was at a scurrierth in a house in my own parish. Every parish had houses like that, small, whitewashed, thatched cottages tucked away into the laps of mountains, and new self conscious two story monstrosities which guarded potholed roads with uncertain authority no matter when day's work was done and our different isolated communities were made more isolated again by darkness. We strolled towards these houses, each of us making for the night's pastime of his own choice. And there was a choice, as Kevin Danaher recalls.
1: There was singing, there was music, there was dancing, there was games, there was storytelling in any given parish or locality, townland, whatever it was. You wouldn't find all this going on all the time, nor would you find them all going on in the same house at different times. What you did find was that one house was known where people would gather who were interested in storytelling, another where music was another for card playing and so on. And uh, you took your choice. You had your own circle of friends who were interested in these things, and you went and did them. Of course, it was necessary because there were no outside forms of entertainment and you had to make your own entertainment and people were extremely good at this. This is a very important thing to remember. And I think that it's a peculiar Irish characteristic that they were very, very good at this. In the first place, they were very often brilliant storytellers. In the second place, Irish popular music and dancing were extremely good and they were fostered carefully and people took a great deal of care in trying to do them well.
0: So, your destination might be the old men's colloder in Mary Tom Billy's, or possibly in the safe anonymity of darkness. It might be the comforting shelter of a furs bush for me and the girl who was adventurous and daring enough to risk the censure of the community by coming out for a bit of a court. Another night... It might be the card playing in Daniel Dix, because card playing was always a popular recreation in Ireland from as early as the 16th century.
1: Well, I think the first reference to cards that I know of in Ireland is here, uh, 1556. There is a list of the goods brought into Ireland by a ship called the Mary of Drogheda, in which includes six dozen packs of playing cards valued at ten shillings. I think that's the first one, six dozen packs, as an ordinary item of commerce. They were being sold in the country at the time regularly. Indeed, the English man, Edmund Campion, who afterwards became a Jesuit priest and was martyred under Queen Elizabeth, remarked about gamblers in Ireland. What he said was uh, as follows. I'll read it to you. There is amongst them a brotherhood of carous, that is carouche, They profess to play at cards all the year long and make it their only occupation. They play away their clothes, their mantle, and all down to the bare skin. And then they trust themselves about in straw or in leaves and wait for passengers in the highway, invite them to a game upon the green, and ask no more but companions to hold them in sport. And when they have gambled away everything, they would bet their hair and their fingernails which the winner can cut or pull off if they be not redeemed within a certain time. In 1569, I think was the date he wrote this. But all this is over 400 years ago. And again, in 1596, the poet Edmund Spencer, talking about gambling in Ireland, said, There's a kind of people that wander up and down to gentlemen's houses, living only upon cards and dice, the which, though they have little or, or nothing of their own, yet they will play for much money, which, if they win, they waste most lightly, and if they lose, they play slenderly. And in 1571, there were laws passed in Limerick that was under Sir John Perrott, who was Lord President of Munster, putting down theft, banditry, unlawful distilling of whiskey, um, Irish styles of clothing and hairstyles and other villainies, and amongst them a regulation ordering certain vagabonds, including common players at cards. To be deprived of all their goods and put in the stocks until they found security for further behaviour. And again, in 1609, in the in the city of Kilkenny, a law was passed for the town that laid down that no person do play at cards or dice with any freeman's son or with any hired servant on pain of six and eightpence fine, and the person in who, whose house they shall play shall also forfeit six and eightpence. And none of the inhabitants do play at cards or dice or any unlawful game for more than eightpence of the time on paying again of a fine of six and eightpence. So that one finds cards are well established in Ireland, well known everywhere, indeed, regulations against them. So great was the craze for card playing. Ever since then, they have held their popularity very, very much. And interestingly enough, it would appear that uh, some of the games which are regularly played in the countryside nowadays. That's the games in which you have a hand of five cards. You know, um, um, auction 15 and 25 and 45 and 41, games like that, are a very respectable antiquity too because an English, another English traveller travelling in Ireland at the end of the 17th century, that's in the last decade after the siege of Limerick, after the war between James and William, there was a man called John Dunton, a bookseller from London, He mentions that the Irish country people greatly love a game which he calls the game of the five cards. And it's very interesting, too, that the the Irish names for the cards, for the points, for the various uh, court cards and so on, all appear to be derived from the late medieval French names, not from English. So that that would seem, too, to give a, a respectable antiquity to the introduction of cards into the country.
0: On the other hand... If you didn't feel like playing cards, there was always Padneen the Taylors. His daughter, Bridie, was off for America the following morning, and there was to be an American wake in Padneen's that night in her honour, so you might make for that. In his book, The Bogman, Walter Macken described some of the music that took place at one of these American wakes.
2: The Melodian boy, they shouted then at Cahill and he took it from its resting place on the dresser and leaned there and dragged out its length and caressed the buttons and then let it dance. They hit the concrete with their hobnail boots and they hurrooed and swung the girls until their feet left the floor and they screamed in the breathlessness of their flying. Cahill was animated. He loved that melodion. It made music for him. He bent lovingly over the squeeze box and looked at it, and tapped his heavy boot in time. A lively tune that danced in his head. There was sweat on his forehead. A lively tune, but behind it, like all the Irish tunes, there was that incalculable note of sadness. Lovely. He ran his fingers up and down with a brand of variations of his own that brought a roar from the men and a shrill scream from the women, like as if somebody had run a finger up and down their funny bones. Ha! That got him! Did you see that now? finished in a flurry of sweat and a lightning pull and the kitchen collapsed they clapped and laughed and shouted good man carol Kinsler, be gob the buys a marvel so he is here have it la of porter, no man you must be did he sank his face in it and no, says foxy gob creel will perform for us they cheered that gob drew back he nearly walked up the walls with shyness, and his face as red as a petticoat, hell isn't no listen, no getting out of it. They propelled him to the middle of the floor and left him there squirming. He cleared his throat, then flexed his lips and started in on the bog singing from them. Twas a great do. The things Carl could do with his fingers and the melodeon. Well, Gob could do those with his lips and mouth and throat. A dance tune gobbed, that's gob singing. A very funny performance. He kept the rhythm going, first standing, and then he got down on one elbow and kept it going there. Then he sat on the floor and gave it to them from there. Then he stood on his head and gave it to them between his legs and from every conceivable angle you could twist the body. I tell you, you haven't seen or heard or watched rhythm if you haven't seen or heard a good gob singer. He brought the house down, Gob did, and they gave him a great hand so that he he pulled the speck of his cap all the way down until it covered his eyes and his blushing face, and then he hid himself away in a corner.
0: Whichever form of entertainment we decided upon, we never really thought of the existence of any other form of recreation other than that which was available within our own protective community. It was, to a large extent, both fulfilling and satisfying. Indeed, in many cases, it also provided a general kind of education. Small children peeped around back bedroom doors or thrust heads through the landing banisters to learn of the important parish issues of the day as discussed by the wise, omnipotent gathering around the fire. They did faith and learned the cut and thrust of card playing. They learned the old legends of Ireland and her songs, although our remembrances here may be slightly coloured by nostalgia as far as the songs are concerned. Kevin Danaher.
1: It is true that where 50 years ago, you would very seldom hear um, an, an Irish country ballad being sung. Indeed, in those days, they were considered as not being respectable and I'll come back to that theme of respectability in a moment, nowadays people are quite willing to sing them, and you get good singers singing them on the media of entertainment, and you get uh, other people imitating these or uh, uh, copying them, which is um, spreading again. And mind you, this is a feature which you do not find generally in other parts of the world. You do to some extent in America. You do not usually on the continent of Europe.
0: Be that as it may... The Fireside evening gatherings were largely responsible for preserving our songs and music and dances, and many's the youngster that was able to dance a half set in completely accurate confidence by the time he went to school, as in the case of Tom Linehan from Clare.
3: Well, that was my father and mother was able to sing, and uh, all the family, I was the only one, In the tin, I was ten in the family. I was the only one that wasn't able to play in any musical instrument. All the rest was able to play in a concert or a fiddle. But I, one thing I know that the dance and the music used to be at the house always. And before I ever went to school, I was well able to dance. And I well remember the first day I went to school. I thought when I went into the school that was into a a dance house I was... (laughs) And uh, there was a great commotion about to round the new scholar. But the master came up anyway and he He didn't know what was the commotion for. He asked me to know how much was two and two. And of course I didn't know what was two and two. He says, can you dance a set? I said, I will if you play for us. At I found out after that he wasn't the musical man that I thought he was. <laughs> Whilst a child in the cradle, my nurse with a ladle, was filling my mouth with an ocean of pep. When a drop from her bottle slipped into my throttle, I capered wriggled clean out of her lamp. On the floor I lay sprawling, kicking and bawling, till father and mother was both to the fore. All sobbing and sighing, conceived I was dying, but soon found I only was screeching for more. Then stick to the crater, the best thing in nature, for sinking your sorrows and raising your joys oh lord how they chuckle if babes in their truckle they only could suckle with whisky, me boys through my youthful ingression of years of depression my childhood impression still clung to my mind for at school or at colony, the bolus of knowledge I never could gulp it with whiskey combined. And as all the rain-growing times ever bestowing on Aaron's potation a flavor so fine, and i heard hear them a lecture about your and his nectar itself is the only true liquor divine. Then stick to the crater, the best thing in nature, for sinking your sorrows and raising your joys. All art is delighting for courting or fighting, they're not so exciting as whiskey, me boys.
0: Tom Lenehan assuring us of the value of the crater there. And just before that, Tom was referring back to the times at the turn of the century when the tradition of house entertainment was still strong and flourishing. And I myself, I'm thinking of the later 30s and the 40s when the system still existed but was being steadily eroded by outside influences. One wonders, in retrospect, how this system of rural house-gathering came to be. Dan O'Leary of Killarney.
4: I'll tell you. We'd no other part to go... We went to host dances. We kept together. And we, that kind of interest. Uh, but we heard off the radio, we tried to to copy it, if we like. That's all we... That's as sure as we're there. But what could we do at that time? In, in my days, and <laughs> I never enjoyed, or I never will again, anything better than I heard in the host dance at that time.
0: And Kevin Donagher, and is to that.
3: When
1: people were self-sufficient. Self-sufficient in their way of life, self-sufficient in providing for themselves, self-sufficient in growing their own food, self-sufficient in producing all their necessities of uh, furniture and implements and tools and uh, utensils within their own community, self-sufficient in their entertainment, self-sufficient intellectually, they also tended to be self-reliant and self-respecting. And where they lose self-sufficiency, they tend to be driven into an inferior position as against the outside influences which come towards them.
0: It appears, then, that this method of collodering, of rambling houses, of house dances, and of house entertainment stemmed largely from the various factors governing rural life at the time. Damien Hannan.
5: It was adjusted to the particular sort of economy that was present in, at that time, which would have been one was in the remoter areas of the West, certainly nearly all the West, uh, up to the wartime, which was an economy where very little of what was produced on farms, and the smaller farm areas there, would have been routed through the market. Very little of what they consumed, well, a small proportion of what they consumed, would have been purchased. The economy, therefore, was a subsistence by a large economy. Um, secondly, the technology was very limited, which was basically a horse and man technology. Now, it meant in certain areas that the relations amongst neighbours, for instance were required certain economic exchanges amongst neighbors of labor and machine machinery horse machinery and horses were required actually in the system because that's the only way they could save the crops or or make the hay by cooperating in labor and machinery exchange and horse exchanges it meant that any particular farmer who wanted to you know save his crops didn't have to have two horses um he didn't have enough ground anyway for them, but that he required two horses for many jobs, or he required a single horse if he didn't have one. But he could exchange with his neighbours and they could cooperate with with each other within a very small farm technolog- technological situation. Mm-hmm. Now, that, I think, therefore, you know, if you look at the neighbourhood exchanges, they were related to a particular kind of economic and technological system. Um, that has changed. Now, it was attuned to the time, Um indeed in this sense it would have persisted with we'll say up to the war years because the number of horses increased up to the 1946 I think and it was only at that stage that tractors started to come in in these areas or indeed for the whole of Ireland and if you look at the kinds of relationships people had with each other, the local kinship system uh, largely you know within a parish or two parish boundary right around them um, marriage would have been highly local I mean, uh, intermarriage would have been very um, limited within a parish boundary or two parish boundary right around by the uh, extent to which people could meet one another if they were limited to walking and going by horse by and large
0: rural communities were self-sufficient self-reliant in fact autonomous the family unit made the community and the community in return governed the family unit it created the economic, social and moral standards by which its members lived and it was very quick to censure the errant member who offended against those standards. It brought the offender to heel and if not, it rejected him. For those who attempted to break this discipline or who tried to loosen its constricting folds, there was always the danger of being ridiculed or satirised poetically in the form of a song by the local ballad maker. Claremont J.C. Welsh once told me of and sang about a lady called Nancy Hogan, who was the owner of a most respected goose.
6: Well, there was a the next-door neighbour, and, and, and she kept geese too.
3: <laughs> and you were the goose,
6: And the gander was with the next-door neighbour, you know I mean? but Nancy Hogan didn't have no gander. And, and the gander the gander stole to the goose, and there was love with it. I'm what? not talking all out here in a few minutes, time. <laughs> 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 uh, I suppose I have it with, well, I'm 65 years, and I suppose I was six or seven years when my father left me to learn it to me. <laughs> and and, and, and to, to wasn't it was <laughs> all in one day. And come all you gentle musers, come listen to I let you hear. It's of a terrible story that happened in this present year. I've been thinking of no harem to Brogan's door. I steer my oar when I met Bill Halpin's gander and he threatened Nancy Hogan's goose. Sure you all know poor old Nancy. She's got the tip square always. She swore by all the high courts that she would get this gander hung. You will not hang my gander for the The goose herself is more to blame. And she strolls out every morning, by damned I'm sure she's on for game. <laughs> now the Peelers came next morning and marched his gander off to jail and waiting for the assizes, he wouldn't be let out without strong bail. And the gander lay in prison until his trial day came on when Nancy Hogan did appear and against him she swore right and wrong. And the jury found him guilty, and the judge said, Me boy, you won't get loose, you'll get seven years' transportation for treading Nancy Hogan's goals. <laughs> when the old gander heard the sentence passed, he looked in the judge right in the face, saying, Is it for doing my duty that I should leave my net to place? If I didn't do my duty, the story would be ten times worse and the eggs would all be gloogers and I'd have Nancy Hogan's quarrels. <laughs> and when I'll go home to Brogan's door, I'll feed myself with hearts and grass and I'll tread Nancy Hogan's course and I'll get Nancy gone mass, So come all you geese and ganders, turkey cocks and cocks likewise be sure in your night walking, or else you'll meet with a sad surprise. You'll be tried for doing your duty, like Gander when he got loose, when he nearly got transported for Anakin Nancy Hogan's ghost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There was one, however, who had broken the mould, and who was nevertheless accepted. He belonged to no community, and yet he was a part of every parish in Ireland. He arrived from nowhere with the regularity of winter gales. His coming was eagerly awaited in the gathering houses and in the music houses, and ball nights were hopefully arranged to coincide with his arrival. He was the travelling man, the far shool, and the night he stayed they came to the house to listen to him. He told stories of other far-off places and people and events, and if the stories were a wee bit exaggerated, sure, didn't that make the listening all the better? He sang new songs and played new tunes and many a traditional fiddler and piper owed his expertise to the early tuition he had from the travelling man. There was a place at the table for him and a settled bed by the open fire for the night and then, like the sudden and brief spring snows, he was gone again in the morning. Dan O'Leary Killarney.
4: I'll tell you now, I was born in 1914 and the 5th of November 1914... And I learned my music from a blind fiddler, Tom Billy. I started playing when I was about nine years old. He was called to the house Right a donkey. He was blind. He was staying at the house when he came. He wrote so many tunes for him. He, uh, I love, I think, the first tune he wrote, he wrote for me. Uh, it was a polka. Yeah. <coughs> and then... After a while, he wrote a jig for me. And then he wrote a hard pipe. pipe. Uh, let me tell you, he was no fun. Uh, <coughs> I remember he wrote Dr. O'Neill's jig for me. And I played it the dance one night, and he was there. Don't ever play that tune again, he said, because you didn't play it as I wrote it through.
0: That great piper, Willie Clancy, told me shortly before he died earlier this year that when he was young, he received a lot of help and encouragement from a travelling musician, and he got his first set of pipes from
4: another. So I got the first practice at Billis and Chancer. Mm. I got it from a man who died very recently, not in the Felix Dorn. Oh, yes. Felix gave me a practice at He was camped out near the, gra- in the graveyard 3, in Kyla 3, my Milton. And I was the happiest man ever came on that road that night when he went to all practice it. Tattered
1: as though it was.
0: Community protected all from outside influences. There were social, economic, and moral standards laid down which ensured an even tenor of life and cooperation in both work and recreation. The system was, in a word,
5: functional. It would have been tremendously functional, I would say, at that stage, yes, definitely. It was a for, for a person in the system, he, he had a place, a very clearly defined place. He had a security which no other system could give him. I mean, uh, and that from once it changes, you know, that, that identity and um, security of the individual is less rooted, we'll say, in, in, in such concrete groups as would have been the case at that stage. Mm.
0: However, we all know, at least those of us who were born and reared in rural areas some years ago, know that these considerations never once entered our young heads. We accepted the local system and life for what they were. When the fat, lazy days of autumn came about, and the dull, droning tones of the Master's voice dulled our already resistant and limited intellects, we didn't consider, or even mentally conceive of, the complex factors governing our lives. We just sat and waited with foot-shuffling impatience for three o'clock, and then we rushed through the door into the yard and stopped. We listened was there a pulsating, hungry, exciting note to be heard on the quiet afternoon air? What direction? That's it, knock an ear. Teddy Joe was thrashing. We rushed home, breathlessly gulped down dinners, and asked for and got permission to attend the thrashing. And then we ran. We jumped ditches, breasted hills, and turned bends sporting dust from bare heels like hares in a frenzy of haste in case the excitement and urgency of the event would finish before we got there. Small fear of that. In his book, Green Rushes, Morris Welsh described the scene that greeted your eyes as you came into the Haggard on an all-time thrashing day. As they went through the arch, the purr and zoom grew louder, and turning a corner, they walked into the midst of activity. A long, double row of cone-pointed cornstacks stretched across the haggard, and, between, Matt Tobin's portable thrashing machine was working full steam. The smooth, flying, eight-foot driving wheel made a sleepy purr, and the black driving belt ran with a sag and sway to the red-painted thrasher. Up there, on the platform, bare-armed men were feeding the drum with unbound corn sheaves, their hands moving in a rhythmic swing and as the toothed drum bit at the ears, it made a gulping snarl that changed and slowed to a satisfied zoom. The wide conveying belt was carrying the straw up a steep incline to where many men were building a long rick. Other men were perched, forking on the truncated cones of the stacks. Still more men were attending to the corn shoots and shoulder bending under the weight of full stacks as they ambled across to the granary. Matt Tobin himself, bent at the face of his engine, his black bowler hat on his back hairs, feeding the firebox with divots of black hard peat. In all, there was not less than two score men about the place, for, as was the custom, Redwill's friends and neighbours were choring him at the thrashing the day in harvest, that is half work, half play, full of wit, devilment and horseplay, with a dance in the evening and a little courting on the side. In the dusk of that evening... As the grain dust began to settle and turf smoke flirtingly reached for a many-hued autumn sky, the assembled gathering, young and old, were fed at long kitchen tables by red-faced, satisfied laughing women. The kitchen was clear then, the tears was tapped and the corks were drawn. The men stood around the door and the women sat on stools and forums along the opposite wall. The children sat on the stairs. The music started and the dance began. Another occasion for house dancing and caleeing was the rural wedding. There was a great similarity between the thrashing and the wedding in some respects. After all, they were both community occasions. During the thrashing, the mehill came together, and the greater that farmer's standing within the community, the greater the mehill. On the other hand, the wedding, at first glance, might appear to be...